Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Landides, and I want to thank you for taking the time to join us for today's show. On the episode today, we welcome back the legend, Frank Shamrock. He's the first two-time guest of Inside the Hexagon, and I'm honored to have him back, and who better than Frank. But Frank comes back on. We talk about so much. We dive into the the post-fight of the Kung Lee fight. We talk, we touch on that fight a little bit, but then we really dive into what we, we are here to talk about for this episode, and that is Frank's fight with Nick Diaz. It would turn out to be his final fight, Shamrock versus Diaz in Strike Force would end up being the end of the career of the legend. So we delve into the promotion, the marketing of that event, his opinion on Nick, and really what his opinion of, of him is even today. We talk about the fight itself, what went wrong in there, with the, the issues that Frank had. And then after the fight, Frank had talked about coming back, but he did end up hanging up his gloves. So we talk about that process. We also talk about the proposed, proposed pay-per-view fight that he was supposed to have with his brother Ken and why that fell through. Uh, we also talk with him about the uh, final Elite XC major event that uh, Ken was supposed to, to headline with Kimbo Slice and he got injured and Frank offered to step in and came very close. Uh, Frank lays out that he actually about an hour before the fight thought he would still be uh, in there facing Kimbo and so we delve into so much. So without further ado, let's get to it. All right, on the line with us back on Inside the Hexagon, the man, the legend himself, Frank Shamrock. Frank, how you doing? I'm fantastic, man. Oh, good. I'm glad to have you back on. I was just telling you, you're the first guest that we've had back on as a repeat guest. And I mean, who better than Frank Shamrock, right? So I wanted to I wanted to touch on uh, getting back to the strike force days. I want to touch on the Kung Lee fight a little bit. Um, I did talk with Kung about that fight and uh, we, we kind of broke it down a little bit. No, no, no pun intended on broke it down. Um, but you came in as the, the champ, you know, you, you break your arm during the fight, you lose and, and you had the, uh, the Henzo DQ and elite XC, but the Kung Lee fight was really the first time that you'd actually been really defeated since John Lober all the way back in 97, before you joined, uh, joined up with AKA and really changed your career. So I, I'm curious as you know, you deal with wins and losses as a, as a fighter, having, you know, suffered your first loss in so, so long. Did that play into your psyche at all, especially as you look forward to the, the Nick Diaz fight? Um, well, I mean, every loss, I think, uh, you know, especially as a fighter, it certainly affects you. Um, this one affected me in a very positive way. I mean, it was, you know, my daughter was just being born and I'd never really been hurt in a fight. Um, you know, when I fought Phil, you know, I'd, I'd blown my ACL and I was, you know, in a, in a wheelchair and, but I was still able to go out and perform. And, um, you know, after the therapy, I had no, you know, lasting damage. I didn't even do surgery. In fact, I've never done surgery. Um, so this was the first real fight where I was like, you know, definitively injured. Like I was in the hospital, you know, I had the surgery, I had the bone plate. Um, so it was a, it was a, just a wake up call for my kind of physical presence. I'm a very, you know, physically aware and, and spiritual person. Um, but on the spiritual side, like, you know, I, my daughter was just born and, you know, I vividly recall this moment where I'm, you know, trying to scoop her up in her little playpen and I got the bone stimulator on my arm and like there's wires and they're going to my waist pack. And it just had this sort of, you know, realization moment that I wasn't invincible and that, you know, there was probably an end to this, you know, game that I was playing. Um, but about the fight itself, I mean, 
I've known Kung for years. I, I um, sparred with them. You know, we were friends. And so I very much knew his style. Um, and I knew, you know, what his limitations were at the time. He was, you know, just kind of starting out and finding his legs. Um, but because we had the, you know, the CBS opportunity, because we had all the, the big wigs there, I made a conscious decision, you know, for, for strike force and for the moment that I was going to stand up with them and do this, you know, knockdown, drag out Hollywood type uh, match. Um, So a bit of that was ego, a bit of that was, you know, business opportunity, but uh, you know, I've I've never been hurt. So I I was like, um, that was my big wake up call. It wasn't (laughs) I lost. It wasn't that, um, you know, I mean, it was everything I thought it was going to be except for my arm breaking. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, 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 I don't know ask for a more definitive wake up call than, uh, you know, oh. getting, getting, getting your arm broke. Um, yeah. but I, so let's talk about the, you kind of brought up the, the, the business side of it. So let's go down that route a little bit. So you were clearly by far strike forces, top draw for the first three years, of the promotions existence. I mean, it had been built around you, uh, Coker, Scott Coker seemed to kind of struggle with building up other stars that would actually draw ticket sales and eyeballs. I mean, you and I had spoken before about the buildup of the Phil Baroni fight, which is one of my, you know, one of my all-time favorites and Kung, it was a bit different. You guys were friends, you knew each other. He was very respectful. Um, you know, you could see there's times where you would kind of try to, to, you know, let's get a little something going here. And, and he didn't seem to bite, but guys like Gilbert Melendez, Josh Thompson, obviously very talented within the cage, but just weren't selling tickets like, like Frank Shamrock did. So I'm curious from, from your perspective, what do you think? And I'm not talking, I'm not asking you to talk to them specifically, but what did you think was missing in the process of making more marketable stars within strike force early on? Well, nowadays we can call it the counter McGregor effect. You know, (laughs) it, all the fights that I picked, you know, I picked them and, you know, fought them for very specific reasons. You know, it was character driven. It was, you know, East versus West. It was, you know, the fight over San Jose. Um, You know, I knew Kung's role and I knew, you know, what his experience was in promoting that. And, you know, unlike any of my other fights, I took the bad guy role. You know, I was the bad guy. I was going around and, you know, picking on Kung and, you know, call him out in the media. You know, I I really brought forth the idea. It was a battle of San Jose, which is an old pro wrestling gimmick. You know, loser leaves town. So, um, you know, and that's really hard to carry. Like that's hard. You got to have a lot of experience. You got to have a lot of um, understanding of both who you are and what your skill set is. And I think the, you know, the following generation struggled with that because they were focused on fighting. So yeah. I just think, you know, I had a leg up, um, you know, I had a very strong brand coming out of the UFC. I, you know, worked very hard to craft that both with my skill set and my presentation and, you know, call it the McGregor effect. It's really hard to tie all those in and then still perform yeah. um, while also being, you know, cognizant of your, the values of your opponent, how to, you know, amplify them, how to make the story, you know, digestible and, and relatable to everybody. And that's sort of the next level. Um, you know, and I feel like, especially at that era, you know, all the young guys were just trying to win. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and yeah. that stuff was kind of secondary and, you know, to, Fighting and winning is the job, but the next level is really creating that thing. And I, you know, I vividly remember when I was on um, 
a morning show in San Jose and I was, you know, selling the fight, loser leaves town, you know, king of San Jose, we got 2 million people. And the guy stops me and he goes, Frank, there's only like a million people in San Jose. (laughs) (laughs) Don't let the truth get in the way of a good good story. Come on. I was like, well, you know, it's the outlying areas, you know, but it was, it was really just, you know, it was that idea that, and that's the hardest thing to capture as a young fighter is sort of that larger idea. Cause you're looking down the, you know, the barrel and, everything relies on you winning. So, you know, it's no knock to them, but, you know, specifically in that time period, you know, fighting was the most important thing and it still is, but, you know, call it the McGregor effect. If you don't have that, that next level of storytelling presentation, that's how you sort of, you know, break out of the herd. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good way of putting it. And you may, (laughs) this may sound like sucking up, but you may have done too good of a job, selling yourself as a heel because, uh, in the, <laughs> Oh yeah. It, it kind of blew back a little bit. Is there a little more booze during the Kung fight than you might've expected? And there was a, you know, Nick Diaz had a lot of support during his fight with you too. And you know, there, there, there seemed to be, uh, I, I think you may have sold, sold yourself too well as a heel. I sold it really good, but it was also yeah. that Gracie fight, you know, the Gracie fight, yeah. uh, where I was DQ'd, it sort of brought in the first question. Like maybe Frank is not a martial arts, good guy. Yeah. And that had never happened. Like that question was never there. I was, you know, sort of the Chuck Norris of the whole vibe until that moment. And, you know, that's why the Baroni fight was so important. You know, I knew I had to fight him to sort of, you know, turn that narrative yeah, kind back. Of re- rehab your image a little bit. Yeah. So I had to, you know, adjust the narrative and <clears throat> it worked. But yeah, I mean, specifically with Diaz, you know, I could tell you know, at the beginning of that, like that crowd was like, well, you know, Frank is, he's been around a long time and he's not the best guy uh, out there. So yeah, I felt it, you know, but Hey, that's, that's good salesmanship. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll get to the DS fight in a second. I get, we got to talk about the timeline that we're in right now is we're, we're, you know, obviously going to talk about Shamrock versus DS, but around this time, this is when IFL folds the elite XC folds. Now, I got to touch on the the final major Elite XC event heat. And for listeners that don't remember, the event was supposed to be headlined by Kimbo Slice versus Frank's brother, uh, Ken Shamrock. The day of the fight, Ken suffers a bad cut, has to pull out. It's widely known that you offered, you were there to do commentary. You offered to step in and take Ken's place, uh, which would have been, I, I can't think of a better option for the promotion. I, it seemed like everybody was on board. I assume uh, so I want you to kind of like walk us through a little bit of that process. And then I assume the commission wouldn't approve you because you hadn't gone through your medicals and that's why you didn't fight. Is that, is that accurate? Um, no, no. Okay. I think the commission would have allowed me, um, meaning I had gotten all my paperwork and everything together. I think it was more of the, you know, CBS Showtime sort of, you know, presentation of real sports. Being afraid that that you would, you would expose. Uh, Not even even that. I think it was more on their side. Like, you know, is this a real sport? A guy comes off the broadcast booth and fight like that's pro wrestling. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 The guy gets up from the announcer table and yeah. yeah. Okay. When I wind it all back and I look at it, you know, if I were in CBS Showtime's position, I'd be like, yeah, that doesn't sound like real sports. That sounds like Hmm. some, you know, that sounds like some malarkey. Okay. Um, but I did, I did call the commission, you know, I had everything in order until up until an hour before the broadcast, which was pretty stressful for me. Um, I was pretty certain I was going in there because wow. there was just no alternatives. Like we were, you know, on the first hand, CBS was like, we're, we're not showing the show without Kimbo. Ooh. And so there was a lot of, you know, back and forth. And, 
you know, for me, it was probably one of the most stressful moments of my career. I'm supposed to be broadcasting live on CBS, but then I'm also going, wait, I'll come out and fight Kimbo. And it was all up in the air. <clears throat> but, you know, I can see it from all points. And, um, you know, bottom line is I was ready to fight and I was confident that I was going to beat Kimbo. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't see that being much of a question. I mean, yeah. Um, so if you had been allowed to step in, uh, how would, would the game, would you have done the gone the Kung route and given him a shot by standing or would you have, uh, you think you would have taken him down to giving him a lesson on the mat? I would have definitely taken that. Kimbo, you know, rest his soul, was a yeah. very dangerous striker. He was very confident in throwing his punches. He wasn't the prettiest. He wasn't the most technical. But there was no way I was going to let him hit me. Like, just okay. absolutely no way. It's literally the only way he could have won that fight. So that, that yeah. was literally the only chance. And then... But that was there was a definitive chance because you could see, you know... He's got he the power. With his hand. He got the power. You know, he's got, he's got good timing. He's got good natural instincts. So yeah, I was gonna go out and pretend like I was gonna strike, and then immediately take him down. And, and drop him <laughs> All right, let's get back to Strike Force. So by the time Shamrock versus Diaz is announced, Strike Force has changed so much since your fight with Kung Lee. I mean, the year between the two has just been just massive differences. Elite XC folds. Coker acquires the assets. Over forty fighters now coming in. The you know now defunct promotions tape library. You and Tito have a, a back and forth in the media about, you know, rematching each other. Tito's kind of flirting with strike force that ends up falling by, you know, the wayside Tito's got contractual issues and it ends up not happening. Uh, so what, what were your thoughts when you were first offered, you know, Nick Diaz as a guy, a star on the rise, elite XC had really, you know, you'd obviously been a, been a, a name before that, but then elite XC, he just goes on a tear. What, what were your thoughts when you got offered? What did you think about him? Well, I knew how tough he was, you know, I knew I'd, I'd seen him fight. I mean, I literally watched him growing up. You know, <clears throat> after fighting Caesar and sort of, I you know watched his evolution. Which he was um, cage side, by the way, in the yeah. when you beat Caesar. Yeah, yeah. So, and I also knew there was this, you know, family grudge, and you know that was his master. And so, um, I felt like the context of the story was there. You know, great, before I great story, great yeah, story, fantastic you know, the, the, story. Yeah, the the student steps in for his master to topple the one that took out took down his master. Absolutely. Yeah, no, all the elements were there. So that part, you know, box was checked. Um, when I started looking at his technical skill, you know, that's when I was like, hmm, started him hawing on it because he was really a legitimately tough guy. And I've always had trouble with the taller guy. Mm. I've always had trouble with that reach just because yep. I'm a shorter guy. <clears throat> you know, I don't have the straightest punches. Um, and so, you know, so that's where the, you know, is this something I'm going to do? And, uh, but, you know, Showtime was like, listen, you know, you're, you're the legend. Like, you know, we need to have this moment. And it was very important to them that we present the best of the sport for the network. It was very important for them that we have that deeper level of storytelling. So that's, that's where I was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this. Okay. Well, let's talk about the buildup, the marketing of the fight. Again, you, you had the, the Phil Baroni, such a, an incredible buildup. The Kung Lee one, a little more difficult, but the, the show still did very well. Uh, financially viewer wise and all that stuff uh, this was a guy nick diaz that not not polished not a polished presentation at all uh, but he would go toe-to-toe -to -toe with you as far as you know talking up the fight and that sort of thing so you know maybe honest to a fault his nick diaz says whatever comes to mind no filter that sort of thing How, did you enjoy I was there when he flipped you off at the 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 press conference. Wonderful. I was, 
I was there in the room for that. So you lo- did you love love being able to promote against a guy that was just so real and and would would give it right back to you? Totally, because I knew I, I knew what he was. You know, a lot of guys are putting on a you know a persona. A lot of guys are out there you know shilling something. But when I looked at Nick Diaz, you know, I saw me you know, 15 years before. I was angry young kid, you know, street street kid. So I knew exactly what he would give back to me. And, you know, that's the, that's the beauty of acting or presenting or being truthful to yourself. You know, you get a real reaction. So I knew those antics. I could feel the energy coming back to me. And, um, you know, it was ping pong. Like, I, you know, Every time I would say something, I knew exactly what he was going to say in return. And I was like, all right, well, here we go. So yeah, he was perfect. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was hyped for that fight because I was, I was very excited. It's just such a great story. And you mentioned you two had a lot in common, but you very much differed on your philosophy, especially when it comes to to martial arts. And I want to read you a quote from an interview that you did with MMA weekly at the time you said, quote, I know that people look up to him and I'm concerned that this is what people are going to think about our art. I'm concerned that the more successful he gets, the more people are going to think that that's what you should be or that's what you should do. I think that's the wrong image to give off. I wasn't a martial art artist when I got into the sport. I became a martial artist because it was necessary. That's how you survive and you stay healthy and keep your sanity. I just don't think he has that guidance. I think he's a martial artist, but I think he's lacking a lot of the core principles of martial arts. So looking back on that now, it doesn't seem like Nick has changed a whole lot over the years. Nope. I, I don't know him personally. I, I had one interaction with him. Uh, but do you, you, number one, do you still hold true for, for that? And then is that really how you, how you felt and how you still feel about, about Nick? It is. And I like Nick. Like he's a dear friend of mine. But, you know, when it comes to presenting our sport, I do believe that as a, as a thought leader, as a champion athlete, you know, there's certain principles that, that translate into martial arts and those should be stuck by. Hmm. And so, you know, I know what he says is honest and I, I know he's a martial artist, but um, those are my true beliefs. With that said, those may be old beliefs. <laughs> the, the sport, the generation, I think has moved on. And that's really what I felt when I went in to fight him and I could feel the crowd. They were like, yeah, we're tired of that good guy. We want some of this, we want some of this bad boy stuff. Right. And, and they were, you know, uh, so the fan, Diaz and yeah, oh, yeah. 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 So the fan evolved, the sport evolved, but my thinking still has not, I still believe, you know, I played the bad guy with Kung, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't disrespectful in any way. Mm, you right. know, I, I, I just picked on him in ways that I knew would get a good response but I was always conscious of that line that, hey, people are listening and they're going to think that this is what mixed martial arts is. And so my concern with Diaz and it remains with a lot of young athletes is that, you know, they don't really think before they talk. <laughs> and when an outsider hears that, they go, oh, this is what the sport is. It's a bunch of thugs. It's a bunch yeah. of this. It's a bunch of that. And, you know, that's what I've always tried to put in front of my presentation, whether I'm the good guy or the bad guy, that martial arts is really about honor, respect, discipline and using those values to make a better life for yourself and to have a better life experience. So that's, that's where the statement came from. And I still hold true to all of that in my business and everything that I do. Um, but if you look at the sport, we've, you know, gone the other direction. Like it's, yeah. it's, you know, but conversely, if you look at society, we've gone the other direction. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think it is an evolution of the fan. And I remember when I was working full time in MMA, I had a lot of these kinds of dis- I had to defend the sport a lot because there was this, you know, it's just a bunch of bloodlust and meatheads. And, you know, it's like, no, a lot of these guys are actually there's a lot of them that are like that. But there's a lot of them that are, are very uh, honorable and, and all that stuff. So it that was part of the storyline for sure that to me as a fan was really attractive was this idea of like the traditional versus the new. And I was. I'm more of a traditional guy. So I was more, you know, I was more rooting for Frank than I was for Nick in that, in that fight. But, uh, uh, but let's, let's dive into the fight itself. Uh, you know, you'd never shied away from talking to your opponent during the fight like that, the, the Kung fight. Absolutely. You guys were going back and back and forth. Diaz was, I mean, on the trash talk very early on, uh, did that number one, did that mess with you at all? And number two, do you remember Now Maybe not specifics, but do you kind of remember what he was, what he was saying to you? I don't remember what he was saying because I think they were just honest moments where he's like, <laughs> he, he hit me and he'd be like, yep, yep, I just hit you. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I learned that from Boss Rutan. In our first fight, he was talking. I didn't know he was talking to himself. I thought he was talking to me. And so that whole that whole idea, because it breaks the rhythm of your concentration. And so I started using it as a tool in that way to sort of work on people's psyche. And, you know, guys like Nick picked it up you know, other guys picked it up because they realized it's a great psychological tool. Um, so I, I didn't feel that, you know, psychological bend when I fought uh, Nick, but I did feel him expressing himself to me. And I, I enjoyed it, actually. I felt, you know, to me, that's the height of performance when you can do this one thing and then still be still. over here doing something else, <laughs> right? It's like high level acting. You're still, you know, you're doing another emotion in the midst of, you know, living in the scene. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's funny. Cause they, I, I just, I take Diaz as I, as I see him and as he, as he is, but the interesting thing is, so the fight after yours and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but the fight after his fight with you, he fights Scott Smith and after, which was a masterful, masterful performance. And after the fight, he make he was getting some booze because, you know, Scott's such a likable guy and every yeah. man. And, and then Diaz makes a point of saying like, it, Hey, it's all part of the show. So like yeah. he is aware of the performance part of it and all that stuff, which made me go back and say, so when he's talking smack in the cage, which seems so authentic and real is, is it authentic and real? Because he obviously is aware of the, the performance aspect of it, you know? So, yeah, but it's, it's, it's part of the performance and, okay. you know, I equate it to you're in an emotional acting scene and you pinch your partner, you know, it, it, it arrests the, the energy in the scene and, when you're kicking someone's butt and then you add in some, you know, verbal damage, right. like it, it literally stops your brain for a second. Cause you're trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. You have to comprehend what you're saying and all that process, yeah. everything. And so yeah. that's just next level physical performance. And uh, you know, when I was fighting, it was just very natural. I wasn't thinking about what I was going to say. It's just, I'd be in this moment. I'd be like, okay, it's going to come out because I know that this will continue to erode and change the energy and the dynamic here. So, you know, a lot of guys, like I said, they pick that up because they realize the psychological tool that it is. Mm. And besides looking cool, it's an amazing (laughs) uh, tool. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he used it to used it and he used it and there's still fighters that use it. So, uh, but, but talk about his fighting style. You, you mentioned this a little bit earlier about his length and I wanted to talk about that. He's such a unique fighter in that he's a volume puncher who relies on accuracy and, uh, again, I brought up the Scott Smith fight. I mean, there just there was never more than a second where 
uh, Diaz's hands weren't in Smith's face. I mean, it just, just that constant peppering. And you had said in the pre-fight video package that he has weak slaps and, uh, you know, he doesn't do a lot of head movement or body movement when he's striking yet. So many people have trouble solving him. And in fact, Morrow called his striking quote, water torture during, <laughs> during the commentary. I was like, that is such a great way of putting it. Cause yeah. it's these little peppering punches, but they really, really add up to, to, you know, they add up. So, it couldn't have been a surprise, but it just, it really seemed like his length and his reach were just a huge advantage for him. So, so talk a little bit about that. Yeah. He, you know, he uses his length very effectively and a lot of big, you know, long guys don't. Um, but because of his, his punches are so straight, mine are kind of wide cause I'm a little stockier guy. So, you know, he's able to really get down the pipeline and they don't hurt. I mean, they don't hurt in the way, like when Phil hit me, like it hurt, I could feel his knuckles on my head. But what they are is they're fatiguing and they're disorienting. Yeah. And, you know, he really uses those along with his athletic ability and his conditioning to just, you know, slowly grind you down yeah. to the point where when you're trying to counter strike, you're using you more energy than you should. Yeah. You don't have any position. And so, you know, um, one of the things I learned from Maurice Smith is you go out, you take the center of the ring and then you punch first. And, you know, Diaz took that and ran with it. And mm. so he's always in your face. He's always you know, striking you and disorienting your ability to have, um, you know, balance and position. And then he follows that up with good grappling. And that, but, you know, that's just something, I, you know, at 37, I was like, wow, well, you know, this, <laughs> there's only so much you're going to be able to learn. <laughs> yeah. He, it was, and it was, it was the same thing in the Scott Smith fight. So he just, he really used that, uh, that strategy to, to its fullest advantage. And, um, you know, it's kind of crazy. We haven't seen him in the cage in six years and supposedly we might, we might see him now, but uh, looking back now, how much was this, your body, you know, failing you at 37 years old with a lot of miles on your body, which I'm 38. As I say that I'm like, I feel (laughs) like that frustrates me to be like, man, you're an old man at at 37, you know, but um, did, did you think you have holes in your strategy at that point? I mean, what, what do you think? Is it just the length is too much kind of what, what did you think it went wrong in the fight? I guess. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, nothing went wrong. He was by far the better opponent. Uh, You know, I, I, I've had back problems since I was 16 and, and was playing basketball. My whole right leg went numb and, and, you know, they told me I, I had a spondylolisthesis and I was never going to play contact sports. So my spinal structure was just always a problem throughout my entire career. And as I got older, it just became more and more of a problem and it just kind of traveled, you know, up my spine. So there were certain things I couldn't do, you know, I couldn't run anymore. You know, there's a lot of physical limitations that came with the age and the damage. And, you know, I just couldn't, I couldn't keep up. Um, You know, even though I was the first complete mixed martial arts fighter, like I still had more that I wanted to learn and do and more, you know, strengths I wanted to add to my system, you know, the judo techniques, the, you know, collegiate wrestling style, all of that stuff I was still studying. And so I felt like I was, you know, right on the edge of sort of becoming my best, but, you know, the machine had fallen apart and, you know, after my daughter was born, I was like, you know, I don't want to be an old crippled beat up guy. Mm. You know, I want to be a ever present, you know, healthy young father. And so, you know, once my mind shifted over there, yeah. you know, I'm looking back at this old carcass that's, you know, barely hanging on. And that was really, you know, where I, I was like, no, you know, my journey's over because I don't want to go backwards. I don't want to get more hurt. 
And the reality of me getting better with this machine, it just wasn't, you know, jiving with reality. Plus, you know, at the level I was and the, you know, the amount of money they were paying me, you know, they wanted me to fight really tough guys. You know, they wanted me to continue to perform at the highest level. And I just didn't feel like I could put all that together in a way that made, you know, sense and peace with me. Mm. Well, after, and I want to talk about post-fight just for a second, but after, after the stoppage, Nick immediately helps you up, like kind of tries to lift your hand and you could see him saying you're a legend. Uh, what, talk about that moment a little bit. I mean, after all the trash talk and everything else, talk about that moment. What, you know, were there any words that you exchanged that you want to mention? Um, but, but what did that mean to you at that time? It meant the world, honestly. I mean, if you go through my fights, nobody's ever picked me up. Nobody's ever, usually because no I'm winning. No one likes you that, no, that much after, <laughs> no, after you, fighting you. <laughs> usually because I'm winning and, right. and uh, you know, remember, I have- Or they my, remember what you said before the yeah. fight or whatever. <laughs> yeah, but I never felt any animosity towards Nick. Like I, and I know that he felt the same way. Like this, this thing was a play that we were, you know, putting on for everybody. Because I knew that he had the utmost respect for me and I for him. So for him to show that in that way, and to help pick me up like that, honestly, was one of the highlights of my career and something I still go back to this, to, to, you know, to this day, um, you know, go back to my first UFC fight, you know, when I beat Kevin Jackson in 14 seconds, mm -hmm. he didn't even shake my hand. He walked out like there's just well, he is so mad. The, Olympic gold medalist gets tapped out in 14 seconds. Yeah, but, <laughs> but, but, but you're saying. when you go back to the principles of martial arts, yeah, you know, the respectful thing, the honorable thing to do would would be just to shake my hand and be like, yeah great job, you know, or I'm really upset, but great job, like anything, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. And so that's where Nick sort of breaks this paradigm. You know, he came over and gave me the highest level of respect in that moment. And honestly, like, but that's also when I knew I was like, the world's changed. You know, they don't, they're not interested in that thing anymore. Yeah, They're interested in this guy who can live two lives and still perform. Yeah, And so, you know, that was part of my mindset going like, you know, I'm, I'm the old guy. My thinking is old. <laughs> My body is old. And this is the new generation. So in that way, I was, I was proud to, you know, have him take the torch. Um, you know, it's burnt that I got beat. But yeah, honestly, him picking me up, you know, sharing those words with me is one of the strongest moments of my life. It was it was definitely a feel good moment. Uh, now you're saying that kind of shift gears like they did interview you afterwards and you made a point of saying i and nick you know nick showed you a bunch of respect afterwards you made it clear that you were not done in the cage but uh, you know you said you'd be back and all that stuff however a year later you end up announcing your retirement so what made you decide to without you know what what made you decide to basically hang up the gloves once and for all what happened from that moment in the cage you said i'll be back to a year later finally saying you know what i am i am done well i took time off you know, I hung out with my daughter, you know, I, I kind of assessed the situation. And part of that assessment was, uh, like we talked about, looking at what the culture was, looking at what the desires of the fans were and what I could do physically. Um, and I went back to camp, you know, I tried to go train again. And it just didn't, you know, I didn't work. I didn't feel good. I was hurt. Um, you know, I really felt old at that time. <laughs> and, you know, that, and, you know, those feelings, coupled with what I knew I had, you know, needed to do to stay at the top. I just, I couldn't mesh them together. And so, you know, I had some long walks, I did a bunch of hikes, I sat down with myself and I was like, you know, what do I stand for? And I stand for, you know, 
these three principles, honor, respect, and discipline, and excellence. And I realized with my body, I couldn't have the excellence that was required for me to be at the top. And if I couldn't have that, then then it was time to give it up. Okay. And so then that's what I did. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got, we're coming to the end of our time. I got a couple questions, a couple more questions and we'll let you go. But uh, I did want to talk about you and your, your brother Ken a little bit. You had actually at one point stated in 2008 publicly that you guys, you and Ken would fight in the first quarter of 2009. Uh, you know, you, you two have obviously reconciled and, and, you know, there's fences have been mended. You actually cornered him for uh, the Hoist Gracie fight in Bellator in 2015, if I remember correctly. So, yep. um, you know, solid relationship now, but back then you guys were still in the throes of, of dealing with uh, estrangement and all that stuff. So that you know, they have this blood brothers pay-per-view. I remember even seeing like a, like a poster for it and like all that stuff. So, it never happened. What, what, what happened there? Are, are you glad that it never happened at this point? A and B, what, why didn't it happen? Um, I'm not glad that it didn't happen. Okay. You know, I thought, um, you know, personal stuff aside, we had our personal issues and, you know, because we were both famous because we were both in this, you know, media type position, it just kept growing. Um, I wanted I to see it. I wanted, I mean, you, you couldn't come up yeah. with a better storyline. I Me wanted too. to see that. And I honestly like, you know, if I go back to the playbook of, of building these things and having the right story, like best story I've ever had, honestly, best story, you know, with Bob and with our backgrounds. And I really felt like it'd be a chance to, you know, really impact the sport, you know, to tell this just, just, I mean, it's a soap opera yeah, you know, like, yeah and with, absolutely. With, a, with an amazing ending to it. So um, I always wanted it to happen and it just came down to the fundamentals of business. You know, I couldn't, um, you know, I just couldn't get him to see that big picture and, you know, he, and then, you know, eventually he went and fought again. Mm -hmm. And when he went to a showtime and he fought, I can't remember who he fought, but he lost, yeah. you know, against a total jobber. And, um, you know, we had major invest, like we had all these people lined up who were really deeply invested in the sport and in this story. And after that loss, you know, I literally got a phone call and they're like, uh, Nope. <laughs> no. And, and it just took the steam out of it. And then once the steam of that was gone, you know, I, uh, and I'd spent a lot of time and money and energy into it. And, you know, I just, I just kind of gave up on it. Yeah. I, I'm looking at his, Oh he, yeah. So Ross Clifton, he yeah. lost at a war gods event, which I, I actually, I actually talked to them. Um, I was actually talking to them about doing PR in which Ross Clifton actually, uh, rest in peace. I know he passed away and then Ken actually tested positive for steroids after that fight. But yeah, yeah that's not a good look. And yeah, that's, that's going to be hard to come back from as far as, Hey, we're going to promote this. So kind of amazing that he ended up getting a couple more shots in Bellator. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I Man, I just, I remember seeing announcements for that fight at that time, just thinking, I would just, God, what a wonderful story that would have been to be able to tell. So uh, I, it's, I think it is unfortunate. And maybe, maybe you guys would have mended fences earlier on if you'd been able to kind of get all that stuff out in the cage. So maybe, especially if you made, made, made a bunch of money while you're. <laughs> Ten, ten, tends to heal wounds sometimes. Um, all right. Well, listeners can find you on Instagram and Twitter at Frank Shamrock. When we last spoke, uh, you were working on a bunch of projects, a, a podcast, different stuff. So kind of give us an update on, on what you've got going on. You were working on a, an educational system and that sort of thing. Um, let us, let us know what you, uh, what, what you're working on at this point. 
For sure. Yeah. Well, I stopped doing the podcast because my my dream was to sit on people's couches and interview them. Can't and do that. that's not happening. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, COVID. <laughs> yeah, COVID killed that one. Uh, but we're still doing our charity campaigns for Shamrock Way. And we've got a couple of events lined up where we're teaching our uh, women's self-defense program to battered women and at-risk community. So that's that's uh, that's always a constant in my life and in honor of my uh, adoptive father, Bob Shamrock. And uh, I just keep wheeling and dealing in the business space. You know, I'm involved in a different uh, tech um, ventures. So we have one which is a, um, a screen overlay and um, a third, uh, second screen experience for mixed martial arts called Clash TV. Mm. Uh, so we have an app, it's called the Clash TV app and it um, lays over fighting so you can vote and and pick your corner and throw tomatoes and that's oh, an entire yeah we've been talking about it in um you know combat sports for about 20 years but the technology is finally here and so we're uh, trying to be a first mover in that space and uh what else we just launched a new um uh, cbd store in a box business oh, so that's okay. um that's kind of cool you can find that at uh, frankshamrock.com cbd but it allows anybody and it's for the gig economy and for the, you know, any entrepreneur entrepreneurism is huge for me because it's as tough as fighting in the cage, mm-hmm. especially in this climate. Yeah. So we're allowing uh, anybody to open a CBD score uh, store, make money instantly and sell natural medicines. So that's um, kind of my newest venture that I'm working on, but yeah, okay. I'm always working on something. I love it. All right. Frankshamrock.com. All right. Awesome. Um, all right. Last question. You, you brought up Connor a, a few times and uh, I generally like to ask, you know, what, if there's one fight you remember for your career, whatever, but I want to do something a bit different. Is there, and it actually is a great question in line of what we're talking about. You say like the traditional way is passed away and that sort of thing. Is there a fighter today that stands out to you as someone that embodies what MMA should be all about? Never mind that it's evolved or whatever it is, but there is somebody, is there somebody out there today that stands out in your mind as kind of a throwback to what you think MMA is really should be all about? You know, the closest guy I would say is George St. Pierre, even though he's, you know, seems to be retired. Um, You know, every time, you know, he presents himself, you get that feeling of traditional martial arts and, Mm -hmm. you know, culture and respect. And, and, you know, to me, that's what it was because what most people don't realize is, you know, our first shock and awe campaigns for the UFC got us kicked off cable and, you know, destroyed the sport. So it was a, a long journey to come back from that, you know, <laughs> blood and guts and someone's going to die. And, yeah. and it was really that P- punching guys in the crotch yeah, and yeah, you know, headbutting. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. it was it was really that idea of martial arts and that culture that brought us to where we are today. And now we've turned and gone in the other direction, which, you know, it's great television and I get it. Um, but, you know, George St. Pierre to me embodies those, those principles, honor, respect and discipline that, you know, when you watch it, you go, oh, I want my son to do martial arts. Mm. When you watch the sport now, you're like, oh, I want my yeah. son to go to college. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's no way he's doing this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I, I, I don't know that you could pick a better guy than GSP. I think that yeah. that makes a lot of sense. So, all right. Well, Frank Shamrock, the legend, thank you for taking time to join us on Inside the Hexagon. It's a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, man. Anytime, Phil. All right. I want to thank my very special guest, the legend, Frank Shamrock, for taking the time to join us on today's episode. I really, really enjoyed 
talking with him and really delving into, uh, you know, that, that Diaz fight. I thought that was really fascinating talking about his brother, Ken talking about elite XC heat and almost facing off with Kimbo slice. It, I just had so much fun doing that. I love interviewing fighters. That was a lot of fun. Hope that you enjoyed it as well. Hope that you've also been enjoying the other episodes that we've been putting out. We just put out a, a special bonus episode with Bellator's Raymond, the real deal Daniels. I hope that you like that. If you haven't already, make sure you go back and check that out. Also, make sure that you check out our upcoming episodes. We are going to be covering Strike Force, Lawler versus Shields. Robbie Lawler takes on Jake Shields in the main event. In a, it's a quick fight, but it's it's an action-packed fight. You also see Scott Smith return against Nick Diaz in just a masterful performance by Diaz. Great fight uh, from, from his side, and Scott hung tough. But there's so much to get to in that event. Brett Rogers knocks out Andre Arlovsky in very, very quick fashion. Big, big-time win uh, for him, setting setting him up for a fight with Fedor Emelianenko down the line. So, so much to get to on that card. We've got a lot of the things that are coming down the pipeline. We're going to be covering Carano versus Cyborg pretty soon. We've got some fighter interviews that we're working on getting set up. So there's so much to get to. I hope that you're checking us out on social media as well. You can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at the hexagon pod. And then you can reach me at Phil at inside the hexagon.com. I would love to hear from you. Would love to get your feedback. We'd also love it if you would rate and review the show. If you haven't already, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get this show. If you would take a few minutes and rate and review, that would be just fantastic. It helps others find the show. And then finally, I want to mention that I'm going to have some some business news related to the show that I'm going to be announcing soon. So stay tuned for that. I'm excited about that and where the show's going. So again, appreciate you going along with us for the ride. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. We will see you soon. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.